For March 13th, 2023, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 767, Exegesis on Lermanism. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are suspicious. Bended halfway when we when we tiptoe as on a balance beam like an Olympic gymnast between the revival tent and the juke joint. We are suspended between those two extremes. Uh, I'm I'm Matt Rather, and I have been redeemed, and I'm here to, to I'm here to to give the altar call to my uh, to my fellow podcasters, Pete Fenzel. Pete, have you been redeemed? The poor boys and pilgrims with families are all going to Graceland, man. <laughs> and uh, and and Mark Lee, wait, we're going back to the we're going back to the juke joint, Mark. I'm peeking underneath the the corrugated uh, you know iron uh, corrugated metal um, uh, you know walls of this juke joint, and I see you in there playing guitar. Quick, what are you playing? I am playing uh, "Eruption" by Van Halen, oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> That is no less anachronistic than anything in Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, which is a you film know, I, I, that we watched. I was watched. about to say, that was completely out of left field, but it's kind of not, actually. Because the shock value that you get from hearing like a Van Halen electric guitar solo, um, that feeling is what this movie is trying to import. Did you, you. Which movie, you might ask? Did we mention that? Did you, did yeah, you no, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Did, did you yes. guys watch the credits? Because uh, there's oh, yeah. one hell of a track by Eminem in the, uh, yes. in the credits, yes. in the credits for this movie. And he, um, and he like, uh, uh, he name checks someone like, I think he name checks someone early in the lyrics in his, in his verse that he raps. Um, and uh, so, Pete, I have a question. If, uh, if say, one blue suede shoe is decorated as like a fancy shoe and it, it has a chain on it, uh, <laughs> and then your other blue suede shoe also has a chain on it, how many chains would you have on your blue suede shoe? <laughs> Uh, uh, you would uh, you would have a two chain. Uh, <laughs> you know, like he named, two chains. He just name checks a bunch of people. Mark, you're you're uh, you're a a guitarist. B a mm-hmm. rock and roll uh, rock and roll person. C a mm-hmm. uh, a person who grew up in the American South. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tell us about what I am assuming is your your lifelong and deep you know emotional relationship with Elvis Presley, the music and and the mythology of Elvis Presley, and kind of tell tell us about about your priors, as they say on political Twitter, and uh, kind of what you came to this movie uh, expecting, thinking, looking for uh, when before you even before you even started to view one frame of film. Sure. And just so the listener is clear, when Matt says that, you know, that I have a you know deep relationship with the music of Elvis Presley, he's not joking. I do because of A, B and C that Matt mentioned before. Um, yes, I, I grew up a big Elvis fan. It, it's, it's, it's the whole, it, the journey is a fascinating one. OK, because it starts with my my parents, or really my dad specifically, who was born um, in 1946 in a little place called South Korea. And then it comes to the United States until the 70s. So you might wonder, oh. Uh, how did um, how did a man such as that uh, come up around to the music of Elvis Presley? Well, you know, Elvis was, uh, just need I remind you, a global phenomenon. 
and also spread through things like, you know, armed forces radio uh, across the world and in places like South Korea, where there are large concentrations of American troops. OK, so there fun, interesting thing right there. Right? My South Korean immigrant dad um, grew up a fan of Elvis, uh, learned about his music in South Korea. Um, comes and raises his family in uh, the American South, in Georgia first, and then in Alabama. Um, raises his children in uh, in a place where uh, his the, the the legacy of the king loomed large. Um, it's it's I can't exactly quite put. Okay, here's 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 how um, this is uh, how you can you know put Elvis in like young Markley's life growing up in in, Al- in Alabama and Georgia. Uh, we would go and we would go to a place called Stone Mountain. Um, the infamous Confederate memorial, I call it the Confederate Mount Rushmore. Mm. Um, and I've written about this on the site, right? The the ridiculous, crazy, like the a drug hallucinatory quality uh, laser light show, which like just straight up lost causes like the Civil War, all that kind of stuff. Um, the centerpiece of this features Elvis's music where he sings a medley of Dixie and then a um, a a spiritual the name which I, I cannot remember and then it's capped by this crescendo of him singing battle hymn of the republic right glory glory hallelujah his truth is marching on right like all this and like the lasers and fireworks are going off and like stonewall jackson is breaking his sword and like mending the united states back together this is elvis this is what I grew up with, right? And this is all before I learned how to play the guitar and, like, you know, really became to appreciate American uh, roots music, country, R&B, blues, early rock and roll, all that stuff. So all that is to say, I grew up a big fan of Elvis. Oh, this is also before I had visited Graceland twice. <laughs> what, twice? What? In one, in one summer when I was interning for the Blues Foundation in Memphis, Tennessee. This happened. I was in Graceland for, um, like, an anniversary, a major anniversary of Elvis's death. Oh, and and like you know, my my coworkers like we all went and like gawked mostly at like the um, the amazing display of Elvis fanhood. Wait, um, Mark, that, that, I'm that sorry. Came out there and I'm sorry. Point of personal privilege, uh, Mr. Lee. Yeah. Wiki, wiki, mm-hmm. wiki. Remix. You interned for the Blues Foundation in yes. How how have I known you for decades, and I did not know this particular thing. It was a weird summer, and not really that noteworthy. Do you, need, do you need me to to refill your beverage, or uh, is that you know? <laughs> I mean, that's a whole tangent. Like, we don't really have time to go go on. But like to bring this, like you know, back in the refill the, the his drink, Matthew. And- <laughs> the most important thing is that that boy talk about his background on this podcast. <laughs> Give him so, what he needs. So, so I, I, you're 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 talking to someone who you know very much grew up with Elvis's music, appreciate has appreciated for a long time. You know, has has sung his songs and like you know, um, you know, like learned the guitar licks and all that kind of stuff. And 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 I look around and think, well, you know, the the, the legacy of his music is is it's it's a complicated thing, and um, it, it's certainly in the year twenty twenty plus. You know, like it's probably due for a recapitulation or recontextualization. So hearing that Mr. Baz Lerman of Australia. Um, is putting this music movie movie together and um and 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 you know is noteworthy for his uh you know it's he's almost like a genre into himself right you know if you've seen Moulin Rouge you know about uh, Baz Luhrmann movies about um they're not straightforward they're very colorful they're very ostentatious it's like okay like on one hand yes good match for this I'm curious to see what he's going to do with this um like heard that the movie got mixed reviews um and kind of like moved on with my life and uh, then it pops up in HBO Max and I'm like okay. I want to see this. And I also heard that Tom Hanks, there was a very strange performance in this, which we will definitely talk about um, uh, more on this podcast. But 
Um, let's put it this way. Like, let's let's use this as a starting point for this conversation. Is that like the movie certainly succeeds in that shock value thing that I mentioned earlier? First, as a joke, is like comparing it to you know a Van Halen electric guitar solo. Um, but like you know the 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 movie and the sound mixing like deliberately uses that technique of like mixing in contemporary sounds in particular like the hyper distorted electric guitar to convey the utterly electric and world shattering quality of his music at the time um and you know showing people like just losing their minds um over over his music and is it you know historically accurate no is it um sonically accurate to his music no is it um emotionally affecting and quality entertainment uh, of the likes that uh, you know um, one presumes that Elvis had uh, uh analogous to what Elvis had caused in his time sure yes so the movie starts up very strong and it got me very interested in it uh, not, put the Tom Hanks stuff aside for a second just like you know like how Elvis's sound and his effect on the audience and like and his, his effect like immediate lightning bolt effect on culture um were all like very arresting to me and like resonated with me quite deeply and uh, Tom Hanks stuff kind of had me <laughs> scratching my head <laughs> the entire way through, and I'm still trying to process it. But whew, okay, that's me. That's my journey with Elvis and uh, and how I came to this movie. Thank you very much. That, thank you, thank you very much, Pete. Why why would a person be puzzled about Tom Hanks' participation in this film? <laughs> why? So, I want to tell you a little bit about my background. Right? <laughs> so, so I grew up in New Jersey, right? And uh-huh. I uh, I grew up with a very sort of corny comedy humor kind of environment i watched a lot of things that either were on purpose funny or accidentally funny from the 70s and 80s and even earlier uh even including classic shows like mr ed up through like solid gold and all i had a very eclectic and strange uh media diet growing up i think um and uh and one character that really always stuck with me was the penguin played by Burgess Meredith from the Adam West Batman show. (laughs) And in this movie, Tom Hanks plays uh, the Penguin, played by Burgess (laughs) Meredith from the Adam West Batman show. Uh, And so I really identified with this movie and felt like it really spoke to my cultural background (laughs) as somebody who has appreciated the efforts of uh, of various top-hatted fellows to dehydrate the leaders of the United Nations. Oh, deep (laughs) Um, cut. Excellent. Excellent deep cut. but also, this is a movie. It, so okay, so I think this illustrates it great, right? Because one of the facts about Elvis's life is that half of his money went to his manager because of a ruinously usurious contract that he was in, right? And in this movie, the manager, played by Tom Hanks, who seems to be doing a weird Penguin from Batman vibe with like a lot of prosthetics, more like uh, Colin Farrell in the. Uh, in the Batman or whatever, uh, that kind of thing. And, um, but, but, uh, or like Danny DeVito in Batman returns, but he has a weird voice. He has a weird prosthetics. He's clearly playing some sort of villain, but he's the one who leads the movie by giving the monologues and voiceovers that explain it and contextualize it and kind of provide argument for it. And, uh, right. this it's, was a, something, it's, yeah. So it's narrated by Elvis's manager who was cheating him his whole life. Yes. Right. Like who and, among and he, other yeah. among other things. It was a complicated association, but was was cheating him financially his his whole life, more or less as a kind of apologia. Right. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's not narrated by like the the spirit of Elvis from heaven or something like that. Right. So that, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And also just to, <sighs> to close that out, he says very early on, 
you know, I am Elvis and Elvis is me. Which you could also read to say the movie Elvis is about this kid, Elvis Presley, who grew up to live to be about 42 years old before he died. And it's also about me, the person who created this carnival act and cast an actor in it. Right. So there's this notion of Elvis as a constructed identity. And the movie is told from both perspectives, though not simultaneously and not even really in a trade off. It kind of swells and rolls and ebbs and flows between whether the colonel is leading the story at a given time and his interpretation of events is the one that is driving the emotional amount of the movie or whether it's kind of rolls back towards Elvis being the, uh, you know, the actual singer of Elvis Presley being the source and the uh, perspective and the point of view character for the events that are happening and like goes back and forth. It's really really interesting. It's not, yeah, 50, 50. (laughs) If you, if you will, no, I will not, I will not, I will not sign that. Pete. (laughs) Just sign right here. (laughs) Don't you know that you have to sign it? He's like, he's like a Howard Stern. He's like an Adam Sandler character. Yeah, exactly. Don't you know that? Opera man. Yeah. Oh, you're going to sign the contract. Yeah. We can't go on the international tour. I like my grandma. That's uh, that's Adam Sandler. But the yeah. it's it, he's meant to be a reliable narrator. But at the film, and I, I will say that this is to its credit, never lampshades the the fact. I mean, it it has him act in a a bat poop insane kind of way a, a lot of the time. Like, uh, and a, you know, it's if he had a mustache, he would be twirling it nonstop. But um, it doesn't like it really doesn't let up on the. You don't really get a different perspective uh, other than this kind of, you know, this kind of mishmash, uh, uh, you know, dual lens kind of perspective that you get on the um, uh, in the narrative of the movie. So much so that it was kind of a uh, it was kind of a shock to me that like after the last thing uh, the uh, after the last thing um, that he says, like, you know. Elvis didn't die of drugs. Elvis didn't die because I was taking advantage of him. Elvis died of love. Right? <laughs> you you killed him. Your love. Yes, your love. Yes. His love for you. Fear will keep them in line. Fear. <laughs> fear of this white sequined jumpsuit. Um the then you know, fade to black and uh the the card there's a card after with the words on it that like um you know that he was sued and ended in a settlement uh with uh with the presley estate because of his you know decades of malfeasance vis-a-vis his relationship with with elvis and it was like to me that was almost like a uh smack in the face in terms of like an abrupt shift in tone where the like where something you know slightly more object where something objective or something that like might be verifiably true came to you know, uh, appeared on screen, uh, in, in the immediate wake of the fever dream that this, you know, that this per- perspective had been, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. I need, I need to share some things about my background, uh, okay, yes, in please. order, you know, in order yeah. for you guys to really un- understand this. Um, I did in my, in my acting days, I did, uh, a fun job. It was actually my first ac- equity job. I got my equity card on this in the middle, middle 2000s. Um, that was a Christmas review. Uh, and it was a thing where I think they sold it as a package tour with like the Mohegan Sun Casino in, in Connecticut. And, uh, they would bus truckloads of tourists, uh, to this beautiful old kind of music hall style theater, you know, uh, in, 
I don't know where, New London, Connecticut or something, some, you know, some town like that. And me and eight other actors who had been hired for the thing would act, sing and dance in a kind of Christmas review, a like a succession of scenes and uh, songs that we uh, that we did. And I would I was um, kind of the comic. I was the the. Um, What's his name? Kind of the Donald O'Connor character in, in this thing, the kind of like comic, uh, the comic relief guy in this particular thing. And I tap danced. It was, you know, it was, there were good times, good, 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 heady times. Well, now it began with the sort of, as they were like getting the tourists in, tourists don't come off buses easily, you know, and, uh, as, as they were walking in, we had some like entertainment in the aisles of the theater where the actors were kind of roaming the thing and we would sing, um, we would sing uh, songs to them. We didn't do this at the end for what it's worth. Uh, uh, tourists get back onto buses easily. I guess it was Edith Wharton in the age of innocence who, who wrote that uh, Americans are much more eager to leave entertainment than they are to arrive at it. But the, uh, you know, at the beginning, while they were filing in, finding their seats and stuff, we would do this and we would sing Christmas songs and the eight actors, men and women uh, would sing these Christmas songs uh, in the costume of Elvis Presley. Um, so there were eight Christmas Elvises roving the aisles of the theater and the balcony. Uh, and, uh, you know, we all had a number that we did as people came in and we like did, you know, kind of improv joking around with the audience as they, as they came in. My, uh, my number, uh, since, since you ask was I'll have a blue Christmas without you. And, uh, you know, I, I sang that usually to some like, uh, some swooning octogenarian, um, you know, clutching her oxygen tank, uh, you know, in, in the an oxygenarian, <laughs> an oxygenarian, cl- uh, clutching her oxygen tank. And that's, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, you know, that was a fun thing. So I, I, have I mean uh, look uh, among the many similarities between myself and Austin Butler uh are that we have both portrayed Elvis Presley in a uh <laughs> in an entertainment um you know not the like uh like we get mistaken all the time I mean h- him and me Aussie I call him uh but yeah that's uh so it, it the the Colonel Tom the the Colonel Tom Parker thing and kind of framing it in that in that particular way. Um, it is interesting. And I, uh, Pete, one thing you suggested as we were texting before, before you started is that this allows, uh, Baz Luhrmann to sort of turn this into a, um, I guess, uh, my joke was like, well, I, my joke is about Jacques Derrida and I probably shouldn't, shouldn't, um, uh, probably no one would laugh at it, but my joke was like, this is the, uh, this is the, like the grammatology of, um, of Boslerman, right? Like, you know, like the early, you know, very simple works of Jacques Derrida, uh, you know, were the, were, uh, Moulin Rouge, and Romeo and Juliet, and <laughs> the great Gatsby, I suppose, and like what, Australia, and, uh, <laughs> you know, so on. And then this is the, uh, you know, phone book sized impenetrable tome, uh, that, that comes later, later in his career. And it's, it's, uh, 
you know, um, sort of very difficult and kind of inaccessible. But the, you, you made the point that like foregrounding Colonel Parker in this way allows him to position it as a kind of a disquisition on show business or not a disquisition makes it sound too linear as a kind of like associative montage about yeah. show business and kind yeah. of a, a reflection on some of, some of his own work is that is it, am i saying that fairly what you were trying yeah, to get I think at people? so it feels it feels like Baz lerman is deconstructing himself a little bit and his experience as a filmmaker mm. which is of course a very common sort of thing for filmmakers to do especially in their prestige projects so mm. it's not that far-fetched of a concept um this in a yeah. way this is the same movie as the fablemans yeah yes exactly it's 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 exactly like that yes exactly uh but yeah but it's also it also helps because if you're making a movie about Elvis, you have to first deal with the concept of who's going to be to blame for the unfairness of Elvis's vast appropriative work, right? Like, uh, like who are you going to blame for all the black people who didn't make the money that Elvis made? And and by making the colonel a like very huge presence in this movie, you answer that question. We're going to blame the colonel, and we're going to blame in particular business and show business, and we're going to indict show business as the oh motive good the capitalism is the enemy. I love it how that works. You know, like, yeah, and uh, that way when everything is capitalism, then it's actually nobody's fault or nobody's problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, capitalism's the problem, and everything is capitalism. Then everything's the problem, and nothing can be fixed. Um, but uh, but. But yeah, no, it's um, but but I think by doing that, they're also um, I think that that's the sort of surface level need that the movie has before it even gets started is, geez, I think we need some way of making this movie such that it isn't like grossly offensive. Okay, let's make it a movie about how Elvis is this constructed identity and we'll make it very much from the perspective of the colonel. Great. You could have just done that and it would have been an interesting enough variation on a pretty conventional sort of biopic and everybody would have been fine with it. But they go the extra mile. Dianu. Dianu, exactly. But he does go the extra mile. And I do think that you see this exegesis on Lermanism. (laughs) Um, And, you know, when you think about Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, who's on screen as a young, young guy, right? As, and, uh, and as an object of desire, and then goes on screen again as an older guy who is the object of desire, both fictionally and in reality, but then has something that's sort of deeply broken about him that the spectacle around him seems to want you to revel in rather than help. Right. Like like, uh, oh, he's so tragic. Even Fantine from Moulin Rouge, this notion that these people, they're so they they suffer because they're too beautiful. Right. And don't don't we sort of appreciate and sort of yearn and ache for their beautiful suffering when like we also feel no particular obligation to do anything about it uh, in in real life or otherwise uh, as a result of this sort of thing. That's not the relationship you get from this sort of tragic operatic tuberculosis sort of death that happens, the sort of coughing your blood into a handkerchief. This is Meg Ryan hitting a semi-truck full force in the face in uh, City of Angels and, like, dying beautifully with a scratch over her eyebrow, right? This is Mm. like, uh, although I don't know if if a deep cage cut is the thing, but it's like um, Elvis dies in this movie like an angel. And, And I think it's worth it to remember that the story is told by the colonel and that this is a colonel you know, Baz Luhrmann, who has told a lot of stories in which beautiful people die like angels. Mm-hmm. And, and and also he just straight up tells you that that all he doesn't even say I'm I'm a con artist. He, he insists all show business is uh, con artistry comes out and says it. 
You know, that's that's his all showmen are snowmen. Well, that, know, or is, that, that like, there was the yeah, that was the the kind of the thought technology that I think yeah. was, a you know, a, introduced in this in this movie, because it's like, you know, you know, as it is often said, I don't know why he's he's Dracula now. He's a Dracula now. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, as it is often said, uh, 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 one Elvis, um, the uh <laughs> You know, that the show, the, the, there is always the showman and the snowman. And it's like, it, it is not often said. That is not often said. You just, <laughs> you just said that. You, you just said that for the first time. And, and yep. I'm not fooled. Um, but, but like, yeah, that, that like the, the idea, you know, the, the idea of a snow job, you know, like, uh, which I guess the metaphor is like whiteout conditions, like a, bl- a blizzard or something. So oh, that yeah, you can't, I have no idea what the, you can't the vehicle, see. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or like you're, is. you're going to snow, uh, like, um, yeah. And that's, this actually seems to me to be really at odds with the kind of, pervasive uh elvis mythology which is that like that there was a real kind of deep-seated authenticity like he Mm -hmm. came by the he came by the um uh you know his like uh participation in black music honestly as it were because of where and how he grew up you know and that like and that as a performer he was very uh kind of guileless you know that he was really like um uh, uh you know that he was really kind of like ex- expressing something real and that there wasn't like uh a huge you know that that like there there is like a core of of something like authenticity to to Elvis at least that's i don't know that's how i read it or sort of uh, how i've sort of interacted with it or how it's kind of come come to me and the idea that like Elvis was a creature of my invention and it's like well i i'm not sure i i think you're 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 uh, a statement there assumes facts not in evidence i guess is my <laughs> I, I, I... I think the movie tries to have it both ways. I think mm. it's very deliberately 50-50 tries to have it both ways. It 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 proposes you this problem of the construction of Elvis's identity and all of the elements that go into it and versus how they're all perceived and also where they might have come from for Elvis versus where they might have come from for uh, the people who saw commercial prospects in Elvis and pushed him forward. And it, it really, I think... Is it's 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 a great movie. I like this movie a lot, and one of the reasons I like this movie is it lives in these ambiguities a lot between mm-hmm. the past and the present, between like rock and roll and rhythm and blues and and pop music, and then also between the Colonel's idea of Elvis and El and and the the sort of Presley revelatory revival idea, the the Presley estate idea of Elvis, right? right. The uh, the apologia of Elvis, right? Um, so let's let's yeah. drill into one very specific, like the the. Um, like a good encapsulation of everything we're talking about, which is the comeback special, right? Yes, in yes, particular, yes. like the crescendo leading up to the big number, if I can dream, right? So just to back on this, right? You know that the colonel, you know, wants the show to end on a uh, uh, a Christmas song. Um, uh, uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, something like that, right? Um, and Elvis is like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Um, and the whole thing is just like crass commercialism, crass commercialism. Like, you know, the, the colonel just wants to, like, you know, please, please the sponsors, all that kind of stuff. And then Elvis is is depicted as like responding to 
the civil rights era, the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King with this rousing, completely moving, utterly beautiful song, If I Can Dream. And by the way, like that last part there, rousing, beautiful, moving. Yes, that song is all of those things there, right? Um, and the movie uh, asks you to really engage with it very earnestly in that way, right? Um, and at the same time, it's like, you know, the, the crazy stuff with the kernels going on. And then, like, I think really tellingly, like, the, the, the cameras are told to, like, they're pointing at, like, this gaudy Christmas spectacle. And then it's like, okay, and, like, turn it around. And then, like, look at this and, like, listen to this instead. Um, and it's, it's, it's fantastical. Um, and, you, again, you are meant to engage with it earnestly and honestly. And the colonel also, um, like, hates it at first, but then, like, spins it around and like, tries to claim and take credit for it there. Um, there's probably more going on there. But, like, that, that scene to me is, like, very important to the movie and also just kind of, like, your emotional response to it. Well, let me just ask this to you guys. Like, you know, were you moved by that song? Did you did you think that that was like did you did you have a similar reaction to it? And then where'd you go from there after that after I, the initial reaction? I I liked I mean I liked it I I was more kind of like oh hey Austin Butler's doing a pretty good job with this you know with this <laughs> sure, portrayal yeah. of that so I I kind of had I, I think a level of uh, a level of remove from it I you know I I also think that like the the film didn't none of it none of the elvis stuff for me kind of stood on its own right like the sense that like these were great performances you know these were great shows they were always shot you know uh, from the side of the stage seemed to be like and it was always like cut back and forth with like with tom hanks sort of leering uh <laughs> you know gloomily and there there was always this sort of um I don't know. It was like someone, someone, someone just doused it in a, in a miasma of like unenjoyment. These things that, that ought to have been really, really enjoyable. And so even that, I mean, I sort of appreciate the, the momentum and the thing that you're talking about. Like I, I, I saw it happen, but I didn't, I, I didn't get involved in a lot of, um, you know, in a lot of, uh, the the film well except one part one part when they wheeled out the basset hound the noble <laughs> majestic basset hound i was like ah best best picture uh elvis um, this song heals our nation i don't know pete this pete, performance did uh, did you did you shed a tear at the uh, at the end of the special uh, you know beholding the the giant red elvis wall i shed a lot of tears during the elvis parts but they were more tears on behalf of Elvis, I guess, yeah. and the sort of sympathy with his situation. Um, and also the intertwined forces that were in play and just the amount of unspoken human suffering that was happening uh, in the, in not just, not even in the background, but like the people who were in the room were all pretty screwed up a lot of the time. You know, the, the like super pervasive, the super pervasive sexual repression that was on display in this show, in this movie, which is sort of uh, uh, alluded to in Moulin Rouge as a problem, but not really like addressed, like not really like portrayed in any sort of credible way. Uh, like, does this, do people really need the show? Like, I guess maybe. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, did I, I definitely cried a, a, a lot watching this movie and I'm trying to remember which of the performances. I wouldn't say that the music itself wasn't great. I will say that Baz Luhrmann will, is very eager to put up, 
you know, movie musical performances where the movie musical performance is not great, but where the spectacle of it and the drama of it and the meaning of it are supposed to be what move you. But this had the great musical performances. Like they were really great performances. I almost wish there was more of them, you know, or, or more or that less they were, interrupted. That they were allowed to play. Yes. Less interrupted. Yeah. Exactly. That, that yeah. like, it's more like you can't, you can't see the Elvis for all the Lermaning everywhere, you know? Yeah. I mean, I love this movie and, but like my head was so engaged with it all the time um, that my heart maybe wasn't following as quickly. I'm not sure. It was beautiful. I, but I also was sitting there looking at the lights behind him, you know, the big Elvis, his big name, Elvis in the back and sort of thinking maybe the font is the part that Colonel owns. Like maybe the word Elvis in that font is like the presence of the Colonel, right? Because it's like it's on the buttons that say I love Elvis and I hate Elvis. And the font is is used in the movie, uh, in the in the movie marketing materials. Yeah, I was just I was I didn't trust this movie. I was told very early in the movie don't trust movies. <laughs> and then I, for the whole rest of the movie, I didn't trust it. And I kept looking for the ways that it was trying to con me and it was trying to trick me. Mm. Um, and, and in yeah. that, I felt like I understood where Elvis was coming from being completely lost and disoriented and not knowing what in his life was real. <laughs> right. Like, uh, I felt like it connected with the biopic on that level. Um, yeah. Since you mentioned, don't trust movies, like in movies specifically, right? Like that, the, the movie, the, the, the this movie, um, goes well out of its way to like hammer that message home on its head, right? Because yeah. Elvis had a movie career that was uh, not great, uninspiring, well, financially successful for him, but not not inspiring. He put out a lot of bad movies. You know, he had these ambitions of being, you know, a Brando or a James Dean, and it did not come to fruition. And um, very tellingly, right, he is um, sitting by himself amongst the dilapidated Hollywood sign <laughs> while he's plotting. <laughs> his return to, to music, right? I mean, like, the, the, it is not subtle at all, right? And yet, right, we are, here we are watching a movie, a capital M movie that is nominated for multiple Academy Awards. It's probably winning something now, like, literally as we speak, yeah. as recording it. Um, so, yeah, it, like, it goes back to simple 50-50. It's trying to have its cake and eat it, too. Eat it, too. It is, you know, criticizing and deconstructing while also participating in the very thing that it says is a, a con job. Although I also feel like, so I haven't watched any Elvis movies. The only Elvis thing, I mean, I've listened to a fair amount of Elvis music. It's not like I haven't listened to any Elvis music or I have no background in him at all. I will say my parents are probably a little bit younger. Um, they were not into Elvis, but they were into, I, we had a lot of like James Taylor and, and uh, Carly Simon and Barry Manilow kind of stuff going on in our in our house growing up. Um, and so like later than Elvis, Beach Boys were big in my house, not Elvis. Um but uh, but I, I have I have watched Aloha from Hawaii a couple of times, which because it's just a, a miraculous piece of theater. Like, I feel like anybody who cares about theater should watch an Elvis show because so much of what he's doing is theater. Right. Um, which is which is the way it's the way it is portrayed in the movie is that his stage presence is a uh, recapitulation, a reinterpretation kind of digestion and reinterpretation of revival ministry and, you know, speaking in tongues and possession and like uh, call and response and, and all the sort of uh, dramaturgical elements of 
of the black church are, are present, which are, you know, you can trace them back to various sorts of threads in, um, in, you know, African music and culture as well as American music and culture and, you know, both ends and everywhere in between. But the point being that, like, he has this dramaturgical through line for why he's doing what he's doing on stage. But all of everybody cares about like a very narrow part of what Elvis is doing. And that seems to be the case, not just in this movie, but in like almost every criticism or interpretation of Elvis I ever hear or see about. I never hear somebody talk about like the whole package, which is like, yeah, he never got to be a star in movies, I guess. But like, I mean, when he comes out on stage and it's like, thus spake Zarathustra seamlessly goes into something that's basically the family feud theme, right? <laughs> and then he comes out in like a royal, you know, rhinestone, you know, huge, he's got a cape, he's got bell bottoms, he's got gold and gems and a pro wrestling belt, right? And he's like running out there and, and it's like, and it's both the Grand Old Opry and the Halls of Justice and there's all of this stuff that's happening. All of this dramaturgical stuff happens when Elvis goes on stage in his like big old Elvis style show. Which, by the way, I think I did the math. I think I am only just now older than Elvis was when he died. So, like, that's kind of that's kind of scary that he accomplished as much as he did in the time that I've accomplished, you know, 800 podcast episodes or whatever. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, it's just like there's so much going on when he's on stage um, that I appreciate. And um, I mean, I got so into talking about it that I like forgot where I what the question was that I was trying I mean, to I, answer. I just I want to I want to push back a little bit on the idea that that Elvis didn't have a a uh you know successful movie career. I I'm going to uh I just googled um box office returns 1961, right? And so like uh, you do. I, as a person, yeah, exactly, as a person does. Uh so uh Breakfast at Tiff- Tiffany's released October 5th, box office uh, $9,794,000 and change. Um, Judgment at Nuremberg released December 19th. Uh, box office, $10 million. That's got to be a, an, an estimate, a round number. Uh, Blue Hawaii, starring Elvis Presley, released November 22nd. Box office, $7 trillion. No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> box office, Ten million four hundred forty thousand dollars and some and some dollars. Um, so like Blue Hawaii did better than Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, for you know for uh for what it's worth to you, like it's you know it's not like it was nothing, right? It's not like it, there was no commercial. Uh, well, he wanted to do a great work, and he didn't realize that the stuff that he was doing was great work. <laughs> it's just sort of what this what this what this movie seems to be putting out there is that he thought everything he was doing was kind of worthless. But I do think that his performances are like I mean, as Mark said, I mean, it's it's not a controversial thing to say that like well, I guess it is a controversial thing to say that Elvis's performances were really great. Because is I it? think that what well, is it? I mean to an extent, right? Because it gets caught up in the it gets caught up in the question of whether he was a truly great rhythm and blues singer. I, I think that's that's I think that's the catch, right? So the catch is okay. I'll try to I'll try to stack up a couple of different cultural ideas here, including the stuff that's in the movie, right? So biggest problem with interpreting Elvis: Elvis is a white man. 
part of the problem of him being a white man is that he's supposed to be the protagonist, right? Because he like he's the imperial master of the world and all of this other nonsense, right? And so things that white men do are supposed to be heroic, and he's supposed to be the superhero, and he's supposed to like establish dominion over things and create new stuff and be super awesome and do all this stuff. And the and the world is supposed to be the object, and he's supposed to be the subject. The trick, of course, and then Elvis is the king, right? He said he's supposed to have this sort of control over things, right? He's supposed to, and so like, there's this discourse. And superhero of Elvis. imagery is, is also explicitly uh, trucked yeah. into this movie, yeah. So in this movie and outside of this movie, there's this idea of Elvis as Superman, uh, you know, yeah. as sort of Superman as an idea of Elvis. When I think more accurately, if you were to speak about what he's doing theatrically, Elvis is the object of desire, not the hero. He and 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 be, it is because people are so uncomfortable talking about that that not because elvis wasn't doing it but because people are really uncomfortable with the idea of it the idea that elvis was a man that you put in front of women who are attracted to men who was playing to their like sexual desires and ideations at a time when there was a lot of very public repression of female sexuality like baz lerman goes there because of course baz lerman is like a great director of looking at dudes right it's like that, dude, <laughs> that dude's really hot let's look let's ski and look at that dude right it's like it's like no no don't fix the male gaze that way that's worse right? like uh or maybe it is better but you know the that famous shot of like leo dicaprio and claire danes and the fish tank right and it's like we're looking each other th- at each other through lenses Boz lerman turns the camera around and you look at elvis as like he's wearing makeup what does that mean it means that he's hot Right. Like he's he's exotic and he's hot, you know, and he's young and he's beautiful and all these people are looking at him. Right. And 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 it's and it's reaching something in them. And he's a performer. Right. And he and he wears costumes and 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 he and he and he sort of peacocks himself out and he has all of this gold and gems and everything. He looks like Cleopatra. Right. And so, like, he's not the hero. He's the object of desire. Right. Like he and, and that's and he's putting himself out there as a sort of romantic idyll. You know, and in, in not even in Idyll, but as this sort of like new idea of what a, an object of desire can be. Now, I think because of the white male narrative, there's the idea that Elvis has to be the best at doing this thing and that there's all these other people that were better than him at this sort of, you know, getting out there and making new music and kind of conquering the world than he was advancing music. Right. Like creating new music. It's like Elvis didn't create rock and roll. Fats Domino did, says in this movie. Right. There's the famous interview with Ray Charles where he's like Elvis, Elvis, Elvis. I know like a whole bunch of guys who are better than Elvis. Right. And he's not lying, but he doesn't mean better at going out on stage in a white jumpsuit covered in gold and like making 10,000 women scream. Right. Like Little Richard. Sure. But like that's not what Ray Charles is talking about. He's talking about like rhythm and blues singers, rock and roll singers, front men, musicians. And Elvis is also a stage performer. And I, and I feel like one of the things that this movie really gets across is how much of his act is his stage performance and not just the fact that it's like lascivious, but it's like an actual performance. And, and so, yes, he has this musical tradition that he's playing to. And there is a vocabulary of gesture that he's drawing from this other tradition. But like he's taking it in weird places visually, like right, like as well as musically, but like definitely visually um, that that uh, that. Yeah, sure. Other people are doing it, too. But like when you think about that sort of what makes Elvis as an image, as an icon, you know, it's that, you know, his you could you, how many people do you know that you could draw their hairline and it would be 100 percent indefensible who that person is? You know, like like, you know, here's a person who was alive at some point over the last 200 years. I'm going to draw his hair in pencil. Right. Like or their hair in pencil. Who is it? It's, it's like him and Bob Ross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, exactly. And uh, and Marge Simpson, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's I think part of what the movie is. And its effort to reclaim Elvis, I think part of what Baz Luhrmann is doing also is articulating the parts of Elvis's artistry that he identifies with as an artist. Like, this is the stuff he was doing that was really cool and good that all of you ignore because you're too focused on whether he sang Unchained Melody better than anybody else. Well, that's Like, it's not that he sang it better than everyone else. It's like, look at him on stage while he's doing it. He's, he's on stage in a way that nobody has been on stage before. Um, that's what's interesting about it. Uh, anyway, sorry. Continue. Well, no, I, I think that Pete, it's interesting what you're saying. I mean, do you feel like I? Sorry, I shouldn't shouldn't phrase this no, no, in the no. form of the question. I feel like uh, the yeah. um, the film sort of makes the case that like he would have gotten there, but he was kind of thwarted, right, in his de- mm. in his creative development by the need to. Uh, you know, or by, by Colonel Parker. That is to say, like, he wanted, what he wanted was to do the world tour, which yeah. is to say, like, he wanted to expand his horizons. He wanted to develop artistically. He wanted to see, right? Like, whether this is, is historically true or not, like, I feel like this is the case that the, the film is making. And he's always being hemmed in, right? Like, like Colonel Parker is trying to, like, dress him up in the sweater. And I guess there's kind of a dialectic because, like, that, you know, uh, his, his, uh, there's a dialectic between the, like, the, the, the juke joint and the revive, except it's not, it's not like you, you, it's, it's badly set up in the sense that like the film should, should live in a, you know, synthesis between the, 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 you know, messy blues hall and the revival tent. Um, but it doesn't because there's also this like carnival. It, li- you know, it also lives kind of on the Ferris wheel and in the hall yeah. of mirrors. Uh, I suppose at the, at the same time. So it's not like the, I don't know. It's a it's a kind of like continuous and hyperdimensional Downton Abbey moment that you uh you know that you get because it happens in in several places simultaneously. But you know it cuts rapidly back and forth between the different time frames, so you can't you sort of can't tell the difference. I get the sense that or he even was, putting them in all, all three columns at the same time happening at like anti time data anti time. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, that's a. Yeah. That actually was a, yeah, that was a super move. Like when it's, when it's happening, you know, Elvis is singing it, the, uh, blues singer, the kind of, uh, who he hears singing the same song and then wait, like a third person. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, young Elvis is singing it in the, you know, the what Beale Street recording studio or something when he's a young man, the, the blues singer that he saw as a kid and then like jumpsuit Elvis is singing the same song all together on the screen. It's, it's pretty interesting. I'm not sure what it adds up to though. Well, I mean, I think, I think we can make a case and Mark, I mean, you chime in here too. Cause so when I was watching the movie, I really connected with the kernel part of it. The part of it where like this is all artistry, you know, even when you think you're you're seeing something that's true, I've put it in this movie in order to like make you feel a certain way. And particularly, I want to play off of your taboos. I want to play off of the things that you think you're not allowed to feel. And, and I want to take your money in exchange for doing it. But there is the more there is the layer of the movie that is more um, historiographically straightforward, which is like which we have talked about a little bit, but we could dwell on more, which is that Elvis did have this authentic relationship with rhythm and blues music and because he experienced it, right? And it's a sort of experiential relationship that he had. And to the extent that we interpret what he did, you know, our frame of reference is not his frame of reference. And I think in that moment when we see the blues man playing it, young Elvis playing it, 
because he's repeating what the blues man saw and then older Elvis playing it because he's trying to remember he's doing a Rilke, right? He's trees like, I don't know what to do as a poet. I'm going to think about what I did when I was young. I'm going to go back to what started, what started and kindled this artistic fire in me when I was young, before the world got to me and introduced all this self-criticism and introduced all this doubt and introduced all this complication. Like I'll go back to my pure artistic soul and he's reaching back and and this is a movie where the moments of apotheosis happen and they're not permanent, right? It's like there right. are moments when Elvis fully realizes what he's doing, his artistic mission, his like his his statement, his like what is Elvis's project as an artist? And I think the movie is making the case that he has this apotheosis of of revelation that he experienced as a kid in the revival halls that he's bringing into his music. It's a sacred and secular thing. Um, but that it is constantly in conflict with the way that he's living his life and that the times when he's able to reach through the way that he's living his life and the way his life is being lived for him and reconnect with that, that there's a pathos in that, that there is a, a sublimity in that, that part of what makes Elvis's singing beautiful is that he does reach back through all the BS and, tr- and really try and often succeed with reconnecting with that kid who had heard that classic blues stuff, you know, and, and so having it coexist all at the same time is supposed to, I think, Remind you that it isn't all BS, right? Or it's the biggest yeah. BS of all, right? Um, <laughs> you know, like, like, but, but the ore does a lot of work there. <laughs> and it's getting yeah. done by Tom Hanks in a penguin outfit. So be suspicious of it. <laughs> to pick it back off on that, like, you know, this isn't all BS slash and, and or it's all BS at the same time. Um, the other thing that's going on in, in that scene in particular is to dekitchify Elvis. In particular, yes. like the 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 Vegas era Elvis with the white jumpsuit, right? Yeah. Who, um, uh, it's you know since his heyday, he became what a cliche, um, a a punchline. Oh yeah. Um, it's hard to describe exactly. Like it 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 it, it got pretty far removed from any sense of artistic legitimacy that he used to have and that the movie is like very much trying to imbue him with. Right. And like the movie makes it very clear as well too, is right. Like, you know, when Elvis is doing music in the black tradition in particular, like that's when he's being true to yeah. himself. Like that's doing the that, he heard or, that felt real to him. And that was his yeah. real life experience. That was the yeah. South. His mom told him that everyone else was going to try to make fun of that. He had to keep and preserve and put out there for everybody. Right. Right. So, so it's, it's a bold move then to basically say like, yes, you know, you can have your cake and eat it too. Again, we yeah. keep saying, you know, all this, right. Like, you know, you can wear this ridiculous white jumpsuit and have, you know, um, and have be a Vegas lounge act while also bringing the, the spirit of the black revival tent, yeah. uh, with you. What's well, and, and it? And right? slash and step back and say like, wait a minute. That is ridiculous. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> well, that that like I it it does. I think the movie tries to square the circle a little bit around the the cultural appropriation issues around around yeah. Elvis. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. N- not that. I mean, I don't know. It's it's difficult. Like our art moves forward by artists stealing from from one another and kind of re you know wiki wiki remix uh in everything but like it's you know a real problem it's a it's a problem of justice when only some people can get rich doing it and like all those all those uh black entertainers who who ray charles said were better than elvis uh were not you know didn't have a chance at at making you know one one hundredth of the 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 living that that he did and this doesn't like this film in this film ain't none of the None of the black people seem to resent Elvis. Um, 
right? Like, and also like it's, you know, he has, he has very, uh, good relationships with all the other musicians, you know, uh, from that, uh, from that, that similar background. And I just, I wonder if it is because, uh, Boz Lerman sees like magpie like, you know, syncretic appropriation, collage, remix, like as a good thing. Like it's, it's frankly the primary, it's the primary tool in his toolbox. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, is, is a kind of, you know, what, what we might call appropriation, but you also could call like collage or, you know, a, a bricolage or, you know, whatever. Uh, any, all kinds of, of fancy French words, um, for, uh, for what he's doing. And like, even, even to the, even to the point of like, you know, on the soundtrack, there are, there are a number of things that happen. One is, uh, covers of Elvis songs by other artists, which in a, a movie about what a, uh, what a unique and powerful, uh, singer, performer, musician Elvis was seems like a w- weird choice. Uh, and then also, you know, um, all kinds of like sort of chopped and screwed, like weird things to do with his music. Like it's, you know, a move that happens a dozen times on the soundtrack is to have the orchestral, uh, the orchestral like strings, you know, uh, soundtrack film, film score that is playing at the same time as like a recording of Elvis that sounds like it's in a bathroom down the hall and it's kind of reharmonized in the, uh, in the, the, it's, it's kind of reharmonized by the, uh, by the orchestral soundtrack. And it, you know, it makes it sound like, I don't know, it, it, it sounds like, you know how in every lifetime, not lifetime, in every VH1 behind the music, uh, there's a, uh, there's an act, like the third or fourth act is always the, like, the price of fame act. I felt like this movie was a two and a half hour, the price, the price of fame, uh, thing that that was kind of overlaid like uh slathered on like a like a you know watercolor wash over the over the entire movie anyway sorry i'm getting away from my main the the main point that i want to make which is that like i don't think i don't think bas lerman can really get into the subtleties of of the the questions about like cultural power and appropriation because it's so much you know he kind of needs it to be okay to do that in order to <laughs> in order for him to to Baz Luhrmann all over the place and i mean like that like he he the just sprays Baz Luhrmann all over every frame of this movie you know <laughs> You know whose voice I would have liked to have heard through this at some point, who's like notably missing from this movie, huh. is Anne Margaret. Huh. I, I feel like Anne Margaret is missing because it's sort of like, man, I made these movies and they were terrible. You know what? Screw you, pal. <laughs> <laughs> like Anne Margaret is his co-star in a lot of those movies. She's, a, mm, okay, she's an okay. actress. She's 81 years old now. She has gone. Of course, she did not die in her early 40s and has gone on to win uh, two Grammys, a Screen Actors Guild Award and an Emmy for being on SVU. Right. She's been nominated for two Academy Awards. She's won five Golden Globes. She's like a widely respected and uh, and, and kind of classic Hollywood actress who uh, she was the love interest in both grumpy old men and grumpier old men. If, if that's like the time frame we might have encountered <laughs> work, but, uh, but like, you know, there are people for whom the Elvis, like, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 
not water skiing. It's not called water surfing, Peter. Though Elvis water skiing movies are like the culmination of their life's work and or like the main shot that they had at doing something that other people would see. And all, and so like, let's not poop all over the water skiing movies because like there are real, there were actors who work who were in those movies who would continue working. But like, there's no, it. the Elvis estate problematizes. So like, yes, the fact that this is a movie that's by Baz Luhrmann means that it's not going to really, really critically engage with the concept of appropriation because Baz Luhrmann is a remixer. That is what he does. He loves that Elvis did this, right? Like, that's what he does, too. He just didn't make, you know, the Ray movie. They didn't have Baz Luhrmann make Ray. They had Baz Luhrmann make Moulin Rouge. They had Baz Luhrmann make Romeo and Juliet, right? Like, they made him make the uh, the uh, Hugh Jackman cowboy Australia movie, right? Like, like he has avoided stepping his foot so far down his own throat that he'd never be able to pull it out again by ta- by appropriating something that that is really would really cause him social and economic, you know, uh, political problems. But the point being that, like, he's not the person who's going to do it. But also the Elvis estate was very involved in this movie. And there are certain things they're not going to let this movie talk about. And one of them is the other women in Elvis's life mm-hmm. who might have pr- provided perhaps interesting perspectives on what he was like or like what he was doing. Right. Like uh, his co-workers, you know. Know, like the, the other, you know, the other women he was with other than Priscilla, who weren't just floozies, but were human beings. Right. And like um, and the, the idea that I feel like this movie was most vital in its first part where Elvis is still this there's still this gap between Elvis as he's experiencing himself and Elvis as everybody else is experiencing him. And then as it goes on, it becomes more of a conventional biopic. It kind of lost steam. I would have loved to have seen more of Elvis through the eyes of other people. And I think it would have required us to have met more of the other people who were close to Elvis during these time periods. Uh, I just think it would have been interesting. And I think it also would have raised this question of like, well, did Elvis really what did Elvis really achieve, you know, in these years uh, that he was working? And what could he have achieved? How good an actor was Elvis really? I don't I don't really know. You know, I know he's a great performer, but maybe not everybody's medium is like naturalistic movie acting. Um, you know, I, I don't know how good of a movie actor he was. A lot of people want to be Marlon Brando. Except for Marlon Brando. He's done with it. He doesn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> He's basically like, let Val Kilmer do it. I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, <laughs> and um, that's where uh, that's where Dr. Moreau came from. But anyway, uh, sorry, I, I'm getting a little bit lost in the in the woulda, coulda, shoulda. I mean, Val, Val Kilmer team. actually had a very similar uh, arc to to Marlon Brando in that yeah. he, like, he really, like, against his, his kind of own power as an actor, uh, he rebelled and kind of against his, his, like, image, you know, and as a, uh, as an attractive man, he sort of rebelled. Um, so the, the, we're, we're, it's time to bring it home. Uh, so all together now, here's truth is, <laughs> but let's talk, let's talk a little bit about the way, the way the film ends, um, with Elvis taking off in his jet. Uh, and that's, that is, I mean, I don't know what, uh, what confluence of things led to the particular uh, led to the particular um ending that the, this film has i know when we were texting about it before we were like uh speculating that like i don't know maybe this was like the beginning of covid when this was in fact this was this was the the film that gave tom hanks america's dad covid you gave covid to america's dad uh Baz Luhrmann. so you know good eye might um the uh 
the film ends with the scene with Priscilla at uh, LAX, Los Angeles International Airport. You can see the kind of the theme building that looks like a spaceship that's landed uh, on the uh, on the well between the the two sides of the airport um, in in the background. And, uh, you know, there's sort of a uh, it's like a custody handoff Um I, I was, you know, as a child of divorced parents, I was familiar with, with the kind of the, the general milieu, but this one had uh, more press than, than, uh, I was used to and like, uh, involved like two private planes or something with the, the, the child being handed from, from one to another. And Lisa, Lisa Marie goes to, uh, goes from Elvis to Priscilla and Priscilla has a conversation with Elvis. Uh, it's very gloomy. It's rainy. One of our frequent wet, rainy days. In uh, Los Angeles, any other year, but this year, that would be funny. Um, and, uh, you know, begs him to get drug treatment. He's not going to do it. He gets into uh, his airplane and he flies off into the heavens and kind of disappears into a point uh, of light on the screen. And there's like, there's, you know, voiceover and, and stuff like this. But like, you know, Elvis kind of like ascends to heaven uh, as opposed to the, you know, how he, he really met his end, which has a lot of, you know, unlovely details that I, I'm not totally sure we need to, to rehash, but like, uh, they they give him kind of an apotheosis as he like as he does you know uh, slip the surly bonds of earth and like uh you know i don't know ascend into the into the firmament that that um i don't know how 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 did the ending affect you guys let's uh let's end our podcast with the ending of the uh the ending of the film i mark are you uh you know did you did you have a particular uh particular reaction to it I mean, it's certainly fitting, right? Like, you know, um, in you know, the highly mythologized telling of Elvis's life, right? It's not going to have the, the grisly, you know, drug-induced, um, very humiliating end that it actually had. You know, it's going to have this more triumphant um, cap here. But I'm going to um, point out, like, this fascinating little detail that just kind of occurred to me in terms of what's going on here, right? It's not that just he's, like, ascending into the ferment, into the sky. He's, like... Going into the great beyond, like even like outer space. Now let me explain this here. Because you said you mentioned the spaceship at LAX, and I was like, aha, I know what's going on here. You all remember at the beginning, um, when you know Colonel Parker is having this like his, his out-of-body experience uh, narrating the movie. What notable spaceship did we see at the beginning of this movie, guys? The Starship the Enterprise, Enterprise. The Enterprise, uh-huh. yeah. And in the middle of the movie, when they're uh, filming the big sequence, uh, if I can dream, uh, in the 68 comeback special, did you notice, happen to notice, um, which uh, uh, some pictures in the background? Yeah, Again, there was there were the Star, Star Trek cast, uh-huh. Star Trek pictures. Yeah. Though though I think wrong in the details, right? Because the I think Star Trek was on CBS, if if memory serves correctly. That like uh, and there was like the NBC Peacock in the yeah. the uh, montage that introduced the the Hollywood section. Though that might just be because the Peacock I, is I colorful. I don't think that's true. I think the movies were Paramount, right? Um, and then Paramount and CBS are currently the same. Um, was that Star Trek on NBC back in the day? Uh, I mean, I I think never... re- regardless, though, like, yeah. you know, someone went out of their way to put those two Star Trek references uh, very, uh, you know, what, at the beginning, at least very prominently. And, and then and, in the middle, very subtly. And then at the end, like Matt, as you mentioned, like, you know, like, you know, you didn't have to put that uh, a spaceship like structure there at the very end. So. Mm. Like there is like a a, a cosmic quality <laughs> to his send off. 
Oh, that's which right. is uh, I don't know if it exactly fits in with everything else going on in this movie, but it's still notable nonetheless. Live long and prosper. It is well, it's the it's king. the the Buzzlerman maximalist aesthetic. Um, Pete, you're right. I stand corrected. Originally aired on on NBC, uh, 1966 through 191969. I'm sorry, and and in its later corporate life was associated with uh, with CBS. Um, so my my uh, my. Uh, Correction was anachronistic. Um, going, going off so, uh, space, the final frontier. These are the voyages. Uh, uh, Pete, how did you, how did you read the ending of the film? Uh, well, so for me, it goes back to that central symbol of the rock of eternity that Elvis is interacting with in a whole bunch of ways because he's because he, he is going into the rock. He is, he is flying. His dream when he was a child was to fly to the rock of eternity and then at the end of this movie, he flies to the Rock of Eternity. And what that means uh, differs and changes across various parameters as you get to the end. Because you know he didn't know when he was a kid that the Rock of Eternity was going to mean the biggest star in like classic rock and roll. You know, the rock and roll that will be played for eternity, or at the very least, the rock and roll that kind of represents um, a past that, that stretches back into quite kind of a golden age, right? That he was going to have this like... Uh, association with this genre of music called rock that was going to, you know, extend out into the future in this way. Uh, and then also there's this idea of this revelatory religious experience that he was always chasing. And this notion that if he, you know, achieves apotheosis transcendence through, you know, his, uh, his communion with the divine and, and his, uh, his kind of practices therein, um, then it kind of takes the sting off of his death. Uh, and of course, often these things are related, right? It's like, well, he goes, you know, he goes to heaven. Um, and which I don't mean to say with like, uh, too much irony or anything, but it's more like, that's the plan, right? Like that's like the part of, you're supposed to be feeling these things coming across into your spirit and soul because there is a sky that's higher where the birds are flying, right? It's, it's supposed to be, you know, ontologically related to this higher order stuff. That's supposed to be feeding through to you. And, you know, if this song singing from Elvis truly is authentic and comes from this authentic place, well, then it speaks to this higher sky. Right. It speaks to the over the rainbow. Uh, and the movie kind of gives us this moment to experience it um, in, a, in a sort of not particularly concrete and specific way. And that way, the rock of eternity is this sort of, you know, the rock uh, you know, of uh, of the church and, and the rock of eternity, you know, the city on the hill that cannot be hid, you know, the uh, the, the sort of uh, this, you know, the the kingdom of God. Right. And the king and, and all these words are related. You know, they're all, yeah. they're all sort of tied together. Um, and then the third one is that it's a freaking comic book. It's not even Captain Marvel. It's a kid Captain Marvel. It's 100 percent fictional. Right. So, like, of course, you get 100 percent fictional ending. The rock of eternity is a magical place that kid Captain Marvel gets to fly off to to get superpowers. Uh, and that's how his story goes. And uh, and this is a story being told by a con man who wants you to believe that that's what happens to the kid at the end because he knows that that's what you want to feel. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the movie's going. I think the movie is both like. I think that moment is really clever because it is it is describing Elvis's canonical relationship with music in a common sort of way, a common canonical sort of way, and his legacy. Legacy is the word there, right? It's like I think a lot of the times you know, the legacy of your work is associated with the endurance of your spirit. You know, the a person really dies at the time their name is screamed for the last time by 10,000 people or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and not always some, you know, sometimes it's like, well, no, the spirit is what the spirit is and it, it rises above. 
And then other people might be like, no, 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 give this a happy ending. It's a Hollywood picture. You know, they, they got to have a happy ending <laughs> or else they're going to ask for their money back. Right. Um, and and I, I love how sloppily it does all these three things while also kind of hinting at the fact that it was probably a late reshoot <laughs> that was done heavily in CGI because none of the other actors could be there because they all had COVID or something. Like that. <laughs> it's just so beautifully messy. It's just it doesn't give you an easy answer, um, which I really appreciate. About it's, it. it, like, it is. It, it is uh, as uh, well. It, it is all a matter of becoming spirit. As the playwright Mac Wellman says in his play, A Murder of Crows. Oh, well, thank you. Appreciate deep, that. deep cut. Deep <laughs> Fenzelian cut right there. <laughs> a long um, time ago. Yeah. I, I just want to uh, I, I wanna, uh, point out one thing. Remember when the the family, before the first time we see Elvis perform, the family kind of gathers around and they do uh, sort of a prayer circle and they kind of sing together. Remember what they're singing? It's a, it's a song. It's an important song in country music. Aww. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no, they actually they anticipate the da 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 da, da the oh. the next. I've no, got strength. <laughs> I've some glad morning when this life is o'er. I'll fly away. I'll fly mm. away, oh Lord, glory. I'll fly away in the morning. So that that they're singing. At least if again, if memory serves correctly, I I noticed that they were singing. Um, uh, that they were singing this spiritual together, and that at the end, uh, in, indeed, Elvis does uh, fly away um, to my home on God's celestial shore. All right, we're gonna have to leave it there. Thanks very much. Like uh, you know, um, like so many, the lives of so many great artists. That the this uh, this podcast might be finished prematurely, but uh, it is finished, and we'll be uh, you know. Um, we'll be back next week. So thanks for listening. Thanks, Pete and Mark, uh, for podcasting with me. And you know that you can always find us at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Bosler falling like a national guitar. You know, there's so many songs that Elvis did that other people did later that I didn't know that Elvis had done earlier <laughs> that, like, I really wouldn't have been surprised if this movie just busted into, like, uh, you know, it's been a long day without you, my friend, <laughs> but I'll tell you all about it when I'll see you again. <laughs> Two chains. <laughs> <laughs> Two yeah, and it's true. And then his mother comes in and says, Elvis, how can we not talk about family when family's all we've got? <laughs> this is a movie about family. <laughs> I don't I don't have managers. I have fa- okay, we're just gonna linger <laughs> Lily at this point. We're putting another rhinestone on the jumpsuit. <laughs>